He was the most frightening person I have ever met. And bear in mind, I was once stuck in a lift with mad Frankie Fraser for three hours. And there was a man who didn't like confined spaces, I can tell you. I've never seen rage in anyone like I saw in him. Now he had evil inside of him. Absolute, pure evil. If he liked you, that was a blessed relief. See, I'd seen him try and rip someone's ear off just for daring to comment about his cornwall. I once saw him kick a lawyer in the throat and then attempt to skin him alive with a letter opener. It still haunts me to this day. He had the most impeccable table manners of any inmate in Pentonville. It was a joy to watch him eat lunch. He's the most unique criminal I've ever come into contact with in all my years as a barrister and a judge on the Queen's bench. Just a strange boy. He was haunted uh, almost. Oh, he put the willies right up me. And I placed my thumbs over each other's eyes. I slowly began to squeeze. And I carried on squeezing harder and deeper, harder, feeling his eyeballs squish as they burst in tandem. Sickly liquid oozing down my fists. My name is Magnus Finch. I'm a writer, journalist and broadcaster. For as long as I can remember, I've been consumed with a desire to unearth original and compelling stories. Over the past few decades, I've highlighted corruption at the highest level of politics, injustices in the legal system, corporate irresponsibilities at boardroom level, and international animal rights abuses. But nothing can beat the thrill you get unearthing a story about a character that is so engrossing and utterly unique, unlike anyone else that you've come across before. That sort of story and character comes along once in a blue moon, if you're lucky. A couple of years ago, in between lockdowns, I was helping to clear out a storage facility of a dear friend and former work colleague who was emigrating to the States. He wanted me to have a few boxes of books and records, knowing I'm a collector and voracious consumer of popular culture. In one of them was a cache of mini-discs. You remember mini-discs, right? It's a now obsolete Sony recording format from the late 90s, and was pretty good. Most of the discs contained music compilations, but there were a number of them that were filled with interviews. All sorts of interviews for articles written by my friend. Some were stories that made it to publication, often irritatingly far better than anything I was churning out at the time. There were a few which, for one reason or another, never made it past the initial research interview stage. I saw bundled together five discs labelled with a capital Q. I unearthed my old mini-disc player and sat down to listen. The Q stood for Queenie, and each disc contained a series of forthright interviews with this extraordinary character. I couldn't quite believe what I was hearing. How had such a notorious and unique character remained so completely under the radar? I wanted to know more, and so I arranged a Zoom chat with Grant, now living in America, to ask about the discs. He visibly shuddered at the merest mention of his name. 
This is an audio excerpt from that chat. I don't think that I've ever been more frightened than in the presence of that man. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's a story to be told. Oh, there's a story, all right. Quite the story. I'm interested to uh, know, did you speak to anyone else connected with him? A few, but it was mainly with him. There was some at his house, others in various locations personal to him. Now, as soon as I began to make inroads with others in his life, I was on another job with another paper that was paying me more money. I just never found the time to return to it. Grant gave me permission to use these hours of interviews as my starting block to dive deeper into the story of Queenie. I needed to know more. An entire bank holiday weekend was dedicated to transcribing all the interviews, and believe me when I say there was hours of them. I tried to make sense of what were essentially monologues, and I began to label sections with main and peripheral characters all noted down. It was a maze of tangential rambling meanderings, but with each turn came another fascinating episode, and another chapter would reveal itself. A chapter in the life of Queenie, Britain's most unlikely criminal. As a character, Queenie was on the one hand a very camp, effete, highly erudite, titled and well-spoken man, which belied the fact that he became one of Britain's most feared prisoners, a man with a long history of extremely violent charges, a man who thought nothing of gouging out another man's eyeballs with his fingers, or trying to scoop a brain out through the roof of someone's mouth with a plastic spoon. He was a man in possession of a deep loathing of those involved in banking, politics, and anyone involved in the law or the judicial system. In effect, those from exactly the kind of background that he was privileged enough to grow up in. So how did this strange, almost Quentin Crisp-type character from a family that went back generations end up incarcerated many times over for some very violent crimes that he seemingly showed no remorse for at all? This is the story of Queenie, Britain's most unlikely violent criminal. to understanding any character. When examining the lives of those who've displayed a criminal bent, the eternal debate rages as to whether it is nature or nurture. Well, Queenie had possibly the most privileged of starts in life, but somewhere he went off the rails. But why? There was a clear and defining moment when his life as a criminal began when he was arrested for his first crime, that of financial embezzlement in 1985, which he readily admitted to. But it was the chain reaction of events that followed which was so genuinely perplexing. Had something occurred earlier on in his life that might have laid the foundations for what this man was to become. These first few excerpts feature Queenie recalling his early upbringing, from time to time, you will hear the voice you've heard already, that of Grant McGregor. 
my journalist friend, who conducted these interviews between 2001 and 2003. Would you like another drink? I find that one is never enough. Gosh, no, I'm, I'm all good. Thank you. I cannot immediately recall who the wise sage was that made the very astute observation that martinis are like breasts. One is never enough, and three is too many. Quite, but, um, well, it is lunchtime, and I'm, I'm, I'm not much of a, of a drinker. <laughs> Why am I not surprised to hear that? Such a delicate flower, aren't you, McGregor? So, you are keen to inquire about my upbringing. I was wondering if I could first ask about your real name. No, you have no need to acquire such a frivolous tidbit of information. Sure, and, and I'm happy to address you as Queenie, of, of course. But, but just for context, I thought it would be... Um, no! And I shall not tell you thrice. Let that be a warning. Do I make myself clear? Yes. Entirely so. Good. Queenie's reticence to let Grant know his real name seemed strange. It was hardly a great mystery. The family were titled, so were included in publications like Debrett's, Who's Who, even Hansard's. It was also divulged by former prison governors, and here by his father's former lover, Svetlana. I remember him. He was a strange young man, very withdrawn. He was always the mummy's boy, loved very much his mummy. Uh, can you remember his real name? Yes, it was uh, Horatio, Horatio, something like that. He constantly remained tight-lipped about it only answering to Queenie. You may proceed with your questioning about my upbringing. I'd like to start with the house that you grew up in. Ah, the big old house. Such a wonderful place. With its ballroom, its orangery, its gift shop. <laughs> Not many houses can boast a, a gift shop. Quite. Like many old families, we too were forced to look at other ways of supplementing our income. Farming on the estate brought in an ever-decreasing yield, and the house itself was constantly in need of expensive repairs. Dear Mama was keen to open the house to visitors in an effort to bolster the coffers. I've seen pictures of the house. It was stunning. It was built by Sir John Vanborough, who previously left his dabs all over Castle Howard, amongst others. We also had a wealth of interesting history, including the very first toilet in Lincolnshire to be used by a member of the royal household. It was Queen Victoria's third child, Princess Alice, who used the flushable contraption after a particularly hearty breakfast, kedgeree and deviled kidneys while staying there in 1859. Once word leaked out about the ingenious new flushable facilities, uh, we became quite the envy of the locals. 
We would gather at the gates with their pleading eyes in full bladders. So when did the house open to tourists? In the late 1970s. Thursdays through Sundays, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., with gardens open every day in the summer months. The gift shop proved to be a veritable boon. There was seemingly no end to the appetite for knick-knacks, rubbers, tea towels, or china thimbles with the family crest on it, all marked up for a healthy profit. I've seen one of the tea towels on eBay. Very beautiful picture of the house. Painted by Miles Burkett Foster. Wonderful painter. He still hangs in the tate. A somewhat more salubrious honour than being sold on eBay, wouldn't you think? It certainly looks more like a stately home. Because that is exactly what it was, my boy. A home! Our home! A home that was eventually taken from us. Taken! By the lawyers, who would not listen to any sort of reason, deaf to our anguish pleadings, ignorant of the fact, and unmoved. As soon as Queenie begins to talk about losing his beloved home, or the passing of his mother, or especially when the subject of bankers or lawyers comes to light, he's immediately fueled by an incandescent rage and is quick to go off topic, often ranting for minutes, seemingly unaware of anyone around him. Absolute cocksucker! For this episode, at least, I was keen to paint a picture of Queenie as a younger man, to see if there were any clues in his upbringing which could have contributed to the behaviour of the violent sociopathic criminal that he became. Queenie was very open and honest about a few of his formative physical relationships with gentlemen. His first was with a temporary member of staff, a gardener, and he recalls this incident uh, over tea with Grant McGregor back in 2000. 1977, the year of Her Majesty's Silver Jubilee. For me though, I recall it as a rather unpleasant summer spent in the Victorian greenhouse with Steve sounded like he was educated at Grange Hill and smelled of rubber. Did Steve take advantage of you? Excuse me? Or could this have been described as an abusive relationship? Look, no, I played along willingly. But I regretted it almost immediately. He was a plebeian. A rough and ready randy royster doister of a man with hands that were far more suited to setting up funfair riots than delicately pruning roses. His touch was anything but tender. It was clumsy, oafish, and decidedly unerotic. Too much even for a D.H. Lawrence novel. Do you mind me asking if Steve was your first sexual encounter? Far from it. Despite not being my first sexual liaison, it was all the more memorable because of the intense heat of the greenhouse. Have you ever made love in a greenhouse? Well, have you? Uh, no, I can't say that I have. The heat so intense that it verges on the almost unbearable. The only thing I could compare it to was a few weeks spent in a gentleman's flop house in Colombo. Oh, Sri Lanka. Indeed. My first summer at Oxford. 
I decided to travel there alone after hearing some utterly tragic family news. Can I ask you about that? No. Oh, you may very well not. That is filed away in a box that boasts the label None of Your Stinking Business. Keep your beak out, McGregor. Good and understood. So, you were in Sri Lanka? I was indeed. I came for the elephants but stayed because of an affair. Ah, dear, dear Chandupa. I have yet to find anyone to match his humility and tenderness. A humble, rake-thin rickshaw driver with a chest that almost appeared concave, with greasy swept-back hair and one eye that followed you around the room, but, but he was a king in my eyes. He exhibited humanity and warmth that I was sorely craving. I had recently been hit with some very distressing news, and dear Mama had become so withdrawn following the departure of my father to live with the Russian strumpet. Queenie constantly deviates. His conversation is littered with tangential turnings, and sometimes these are conversational cul-de-sacs when he drifts off forgetting his original point. But each detour is another glimpse into another corner of this extraordinary character's life. When asked about school, he becomes genuinely wistful, transported back to another world, a world where he seemed completely at peace. Despite constant bullying and what on the face of it seemed like forced sexual encounters with older boys, his time at Winchester College is perhaps the only time he felt completely at ease. Oh, Winchester, it was bliss. It was the making of me. Uh, my public schools in the 60s and 70s did have the reputation of being rather draconian places where corporal punishment was meted out for the slightest misdemeanour. Was that your experience? Yes, yes, I was beaten regularly. But you must understand that the beating is all part of the game. The game? The game of just being a schoolboy? If you dare to stand out like I did, especially in such an august and traditional rarefied institution, then you have to expect there shall be consequences from both staff and pupils. Those pretty enough or courageous enough to stick their heads above the parapet must expect some sort of hostile attention. But with every beating came the knowledge that another layer of skin was being added until you were rhino-like with thick-layered skin and one needs armor, doesn't one, for putting up with real life out there in the cruel, cruel world. So you were happy to put up with it? Beatings and bullying were rife. It was part of my everyday existence. There's nothing to do with being happy about it. And I certainly wasn't alone. But there is no use in crying about it. That sort of resilience came very handy in the early days of being banged up behind the wall in Parkhurst. Psychologist Nigel Puse. What we have here is definitely an adjustment disorder. So the series of events in Queenie's case, both the departure of his father due to the coming to the light of a long-term affair and then the subsequent loss of the family home would, without question, have had a deep effect on him as a young adult. Um, what about his younger years? Well, 
listening to his own testimony of school and various other sexual encounters, the one with the gardener, for example, he, he's projecting an almost cursory acceptance of them and superficially it does seem like he wasn't affected in the same way. But we must also take into account that because of his age, uh, that episodes during his school years could have been so traumatic that his only coping mechanism was to compartmentalise them, to, to put them away and retrospectively attach an almost, that was to be expected, label to them. You see, as humans, we cope with trauma in a variety of ways, and children especially, they're very skilled in an unknowing way at being able to marginalise tragedy for some time, only for it to resurface or be triggered by other events later on in life. So you think that his father leaving and the loss of his beloved family home could well have triggered an earlier childhood trauma? It's certainly a, a very real possibility, yes. Still, I was searching for something tangible to be able to understand how a seemingly happy young boy from a privileged background could go on to lead a life peppered with violence and terror. And then, quite unexpectedly, I found it. On another unmarked mini-disc was a conversation that took place between Grant and Queenie as they were driving to an unknown destination, I think for lunch. After a few minutes of rather mundane chat, things became very disturbing as the conversation focuses on the family pets. Mr Nixon was his name account of its fates which bore an uncanny resemblance to the 37th President of the United States. Uh, what, what breed of dog was it? I have no idea. It was a vile creature, mongrel with a seemingly unending appetite for frottage. Frottage? Of rubbing itself against your limbs in a desperate attempt to sexually gratify itself. Even as a youth, I was aware that this practice was vile and utterly unwanted by all except my father, who I think attained the same thrill as the repulsive canine beast. So you had no uh, emotional attachment to it? Oh, God, no. There was no warning of its arrival, no consultation. I came back from school for the Easter holidays, and there it was, set up, looking at me. Its angry, crumpled face, replete with drooling mouth, ready to clamp onto my leg and desperately try to pleasure itself, all the while whimpering like some pathetic, lost-lorn creature. But to, to actually kill it, to murder it, seems like a wholly disproportionate response. It was what we might call a crime passionnel. I was driven to it intense day of rubbing and woeful whimpering. I can remember I was consumed with the need to finish some rather fiendish algebra homework. With maths never coming easy to me, I was under quite the cumulonimbus of pressure. And I snapped. What? I snapped. Oh, I thought you meant that you snapped its neck or... No, I couldn't do that. But I thought you said that you hated him. I did, but I didn't have the wherewithal to snap the neck of a medium-sized dog. So how did you kill Mr. Nixon? I strangled him. 
I simply put both my hands around his neck and I began to squeeze tighter and tighter until the... He then begins to describe in distressing detail the murder of the family pet. Now, for obvious reasons, I've decided to omit that description from this podcast. But there isn't a hint of regret or remorse for this appalling act of violence. I then placed it in an old hold-all bag that I'd found in the attic, and I walked to the outer perimeter of the estate, near the old gate cottage, and I dug a grave for it. And I sunk a cross into the earth that I fashioned from two bits of metal that I found close at hand. A rudimentary burial for a vile creature. No. I walked back to the house and pleaded complete ignorance. For a long time, Father was visibly distraught. He spent a few days on a futile quest to track the beast down, but he curtailed this mission and said that he couldn't possibly get another dog, as the heartache he felt losing Mr. Nixon was not something he could face going through again. He was always such a weak man. I decided to see if there was any trace of the grave of Mr. Nixon when I visited the property not so long ago. Now, I'm walking along the uh, perimeter, uh, the stone wall close to the road, and uh, Gate Cottage is up on my left. That's now rented out by the hotel as a sort of self-contained suite. Looks very swanky. Um, right, now I'm just going to go through. You can hear the church there in the background. I'm just going to go through this gate and... Uh, back onto myself uh, with the wall next to me and um, it's uh, it's quite overgrown. I'm using a stick to move the weeds out of the way and uh, I'm looking for any clues against the wall. Ah, right, okay, there's a rusty piece of metal here that... Um, is still in the, the ground and you can see that there was uh, definitely something another piece uh, would have been attached to it at some point so got a vertical portion of what would have been a cross marking the point of the grave which Queenie dug for the family pet which he murdered in cold blood quite chilling in the coming episodes you will realise that these incidents of violence will become more and more frequent. Next time, we delve into Queenie's family background and talk to a surviving uncle, the mistress of his father, Hubert, to a former school friend and school matron, and we hear more from Queenie himself. So join me next time when I take a look into Queenie's background and a family history to look for any clues as to why he ended up as Britain's most unlikely violent criminal. Queenie, Britain's most unlikely violent criminal, was written and produced by Steve First, with voices and music by Steve First. Additional voices by Debbie Chazen.